Hello, listeners, and welcome to Closing Time, the podcast that provides an inside look at the world of healthcare startups and venture capital. I'm Hallie Tecco. And I'm Michael Esquivel. Each episode, we get the privilege of meeting entrepreneurs at the forefront of healthcare innovation. You get to eavesdrop on pitches that are reshaping healthcare from founders daring to think differently. So pull up a chair and join us as we journey into the future of healthcare, one pitch at a time. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Closing Time. We're your co-hosts, Michael Esquivel and Hallie Tecco. Today, we are joined by our VC guest, Ilana Berkowitz, founding partner of SpringBank. SpringBank is an early stage fund focused on exceptional companies that are building the infrastructure for a more equal future. And of course, our star founder today is Peter Park of Alchemy Health. Thanks for joining us, Ilana and Peter. Thanks for having us. Peter, Thanks. yeah, Peter, why don't you kick us off by giving us an overview of, of the Alchemy pitch and let us know what the light bulb moment was that inspired you to start the company? So the light bulb moment and kind of the inspiration is like a longer answer, but I'll, I'll say, you know, just to what we do, Alchemy builds and operates pharmacies for safety net clinics throughout the U.S. And this is like a very specific thing. Safety net clinic is a broad category of, uh, that's actually a federal designation through, through HRSA. Uh, this, if you've heard of uh, Ryan White HIV centers or STI clinics, it's like an alphabet soup of acronyms, DISH hospitals, critical access hospitals, uh, black lung clinics in Appalachia. These are all safety net providers that take care of either very specific medical conditions that have historically been hard to insure or are uh, have an uninsured population that really needs access to care. Uh, so they get this specific federal designation and we build pharmacies, brick and mortar pharmacies within the four walls uh, on premise inside of these clinics uh, on behalf of uh, these covered entities. In terms of, well, we start there. Uh, let's say the, the next component of what we do as a business is we layer in clinical pharmacy interventions. These are public health and clinical pharmacy oriented programs because they're so close to need and so close to kind of uh, such an important part of how county and state departments of health meet their public health objectives. Uh, so we design bespoke clinical uh, pharmacy programs using that on-site pharmacy service that, that they now have launched. Uh, and then we layer in technology that's both internal facing as well as patient facing to improve patient outcomes for, for our, our, um, uh, for our, our uh, clients. Yeah. So what was that light bulb moment then, Peter? Why tackle this incredibly important need? So the light bulb moment actually came from a question that I, I come from a global health background. I lived in East Africa for 14 years uh, working with HIV care and HIV control. But HIV medication adherence outcomes are better in Africa than they are in the United States. What? And that's wow. always baffled me. From a public health perspective, what are the barriers to access to medications and adherence that are driving such different outcomes for a medication that is very manageable if you only just took your medications every day, right? Um, and learning how the healthcare system works in the United States after living 14 years abroad on HIV care in, in a global health setting, which has its own massive barriers, right? The types of barriers patients face in the United States are starkly different, but equally, if not more concerning. And the safety net clinics are the ones that help remove those barriers to care and having an on-premise and, and like a pharmacy in-house pharmacy service is going to be the answer for how you can start to shift that 
narrative and, and improve health, health outcomes. So it really comes from, in a lot of ways, me, like I was 22, you know, 2002 when I moved out to Kenya, that was peak mm -hmm. global HIV time uh, uh, for, you know, lack of access to medications and kind of tracked that condition through the past 20 years from like a, a life and death emergency to a manageable chronic condition. And this is kind of bringing a full circle to understanding what the dynamics are around public health and like clinical service delivery, um, you know, in my home country. Wow. Peter, thank you for sharing. And it's so interesting to hear from a founder who's bringing what they learned in global health to the U.S. We so often hear about people taking their, you know, U.S. healthcare experience to go save people in developing countries. But certainly there's kind of a two-way street and there's a lot we can learn here as well. My question for you is um, if you could go a little deeper into the company itself and how much of this is a service business versus how much of this is a software business. Sure. I'm not going to run away from the services side of the business. This is a heavy services business. We are building brick and mortar pharmacies. And there's a specific regulatory driven reason that's impacting these safety net clinics that we can get into if you'd like, um, that's driving this physical service layer. But I think what the what we bring to the table in the long term, we just started, so we're still a little sprout, but as we grow, we think both a heavy clinical and public health orientation alongside a technology development product orientation is actually what our patients are going to need uh, as their expectations for how they consume healthcare evolve. So so that you know, so so we're gonna be a bit of both, but I would say right now we are really a heavy services side. And it's important for us to deliver on like the table stakes of what yeah. it takes to, to build in this market. And will your margins look more like a services, healthcare services business then? Yes and no, depending on, I mean, I've heard numbers across the board about what that, what, what that actually means, right? Um, I, I would say this is, you know, a, a healthy business, both on the services and on the product side from a margin perspective. And that was really important for me as a, as a third time founder to go into this, to be like, okay, if we know we're going to be. Uh, have a heavy service orientation, we got to make sure that it can stand on its own two feet and be a solid business as a floor, right? Um, uh, and then everything else is accretive from there. A question for me, I think that, that the 340B program is a really interesting opportunity hiding in plain sight and hiding in a lot of sometimes confusingly worded regulatory documents, but it's, you know, $50 billion annual spend federal prescription drug program, which makes it second only to Medicare Part D that obviously serves serves a really important function in terms of making sure that social safety net healthcare providers can stay open and stay in business. As you kind of obliquely referred to, there's been some regulatory tosses and turns and, and changes in perspective around this program over the years, though it's been around for decades. I'm curious how you think about understanding some of the kind of regulatory tailwinds and headwinds when you think about this kind of business and how you stay on top of that? Sure. That's a that's a big question. And there's a lot of subtopics we can kind of go through. But but first, let me say, yeah, like the to, to connect the dots, 340B is a section of the public health code uh, that allows these safety net clinics, these federally designated safety net clinics, and only these clinics to purchase medications from essentially the entire pharmaceutical industry at a, a discounted rate uh, versus what you would pay as like a retail pharmacy or, or, or a corp normal pharmacy. Uh, and that's what makes this from the services side an attractive business where there's enough margin 
uh, to be able to work and provide the types of services patients need, which are not reimbursed by payers or state agencies, uh, but are crucially important for how patients actually improve adherence and drug out health outcomes and whatnot. Um, uh, but uh, the, the, the program that we play in or the regulatory space that we play in is the 340B uh, drug program. And specifically, um, we work with STI clinics that focus on like HIV control and hep C, really out of personal interest and, and kind of passion, uh, as well as community health centers, federally qualified health centers, which are outpatient um, uh, clinics, uh, often several clinics that are under an umbrella um, that are nonprofits that serve the community, right? Um, the, the regulatory moment um, that's happening right now is historically, and why we're doing this business of building these pharmacies is that Historically, uh, these uh, what are called covered entities, 340B covered entities, uh, these clinics or providers could uh, essentially sign a third-party service contract with a Walgreens or a CVS or a local neighborhood Walmart pharmacy, and they would be able to then purchase drugs on behalf of their patients at these discounted rates. And that that margin difference is they could they could keep to keep the lights on and fund critical programs. Pharma generally um, has start increasingly just said, we're not going to honor your contract pharmacy agreement with your Walgreens. We will honor your pharmacy or a single contracted pharmacy, but not like a network of them. And that has actually been pretty catastrophic for a number of these entities where all of a sudden the rug for how they is get, gets pulled out under them for how they fund these, these, these critical programs. And that's what's created the market moment to say, well, Look, all along, we knew the most, the best thing clinically uh, and the best thing to stabilize my 340B program was to actually create and stand up my own pharmacy. But they've historically always been able to outsource that expertise and knowledge, right? So they're kind of in this, they need to rapidly figure out how to get uh, their 340B program under control. And that's kind of where we come in as like, you know, clinical pharmacists and and technology and, and, cl- and pharmacy operators. And just as this opportunity came about because of legislation and also because of what you're saying, pharma um, not honoring these contracts, what sort of risk is there that it'll turn the other way and the opportunity yeah. becomes like something where you're stuck in and not able to serve your clients sure. anymore? Yeah, it's a really good question and something that we've thought a lot about, like where we want to, to if we want to be involved in the space at all, or, or, or if so, how, um, or know what parts of it. I would say first, like the most important takeaway point, I think, from this, uh, from a regress standpoint is like, what happens if the 340B program goes away? And I'll just be in no uncertain terms, it would be catastrophic for patient care and especially disproportionately hit poor people, people without insurance, people who are undocumented, uh, people who are, who can't, you know, like have extremely high copays and difficult to navigate the system. It would be um, a massive a massively negative consequence and Medicaid expansion or any other current parts of the way the healthcare system works is not going to fill that gap, right? So so the first order question is like, is the 340B program at risk? There are a lot of like tweaks going on around the margins, but broadly speaking, my interpretation, and I, I believe the only way, uh, th- there's not going to be a way to fill that gap without a massive budget increase uh, at the federal and state level. So our view, and it's always been a very bipartisan, strongly bipartisanly supported uh, program, so that we think the program itself is here to stay. Now, the question is whether you can um, have an unlimited number of CVS and, and Walmart contracts to take advantage of the 340B program. That's the part that is much more uncertain. And, and 
it is being fought at the state and federal level right now. And, and, the, and it, there are headwinds and tailwinds going uh, across the board. The good thing for us is that we are squarely focused on the one part and the original rulemaking around the 340B program, which is building and operating your own on-prem pharmacy, that if the dominoes were to fall, the entire 340B program would have to fall if we were going to be put at risk. And honestly, in some ways, all of the, the, the shifts in the way the market is structured is actually kind of to our benefit. And so we're kind of growing, even if the overall market sort of declines, if that makes sense. And so it sounds like there's some pushback, though, from pharma as well, Peter. Um, yeah. What, what, Absolutely. Could, could you drill down just a little bit on that piece? You know, as I think about the business model, yeah. you know, we, we, they obviously don't like the steeper discounts that are required here. So, of course. So how do yep. we how yep. do we get a shift, a mindset shift? I mean, th- these are the most vulnerable of communities and the most vulnerable of patients. Mm-hmm. So just just curious how you all are thinking about that that aspect. Yeah, I'd be really curious what, you know, a podcast of the pharma executive on this on this, you know, topic would how the what the <laughs> talk track would be, but here's my sort of view is um uh first off, it, it is absolutely a transfer payment from pharma to support safety net providers, right? But the origin story of where that happened and it's actually a really good case study of what the federal government can do if it actually were allowed to negotiate across all NDCs, like you'll see something like this, right? But obviously, the overall market can't work to suppress prices at that level. And so the the notion was it was kind of a little bit of like a a little bit of horse trading, right? By uh, when when they were setting up Medicaid rebates, um, is that said, hey, if you want to participate participate in the Medicaid formulary, help us take care of this niche group of providers that that are working with patients that nobody wants to work with, right? That is an uninsured patient anyway, so you're not going to be able to necessarily even you know, get paid for those prescriptions and let us try to find a way without burdening the taxpayer, a a, a mechanism so that this part of the, of our society is taken care of. And I thought it was actually like the intentions are really noble. And I think pharma will agree with that broadly. And their public statements are, we agree fully and fully support the intention of the 340B program where their arguments are are generally uh, squared at health, large health systems, like large academic medical centers that are also 340B participants, where they do take care of some uncompensated care, but not are on the ground in the same way that these FQHCs and, and STI clinics are, which are called grantees, let's say. So there's hospitals and grantees. And most of the, the back and forth, and that's where the bulk of it, it's like 70 or 80% of the 340B spend is actually on the health system side, right? They're trying to clamp that down and cap it and uh, and that's what's kind of going on. But there's no question that pharma, if they're, they're okay with it as long as it doesn't grow. <laughs> but let's go back to where their original origin story was. It was so that the so that the the manufacturers could participate in medi- in, in the Medicaid formulary. And this was the way to kind of like meet multiple policy objectives. And, and I think it was like a, a well-intentioned and, and generally well-designed program. And uh, there's still some things to work through to kind of make it work for all actors from a reporting standpoint, perhaps, or limiting what, you know, larger systems are able to use 340B savings for. Um, but, uh, but, but yeah, that's kind of, that, that's, yeah, that's kind of the, the background. I'd love to hear a little bit about where you are now in the business, what sort of milestones you've hit. Sure. Uh, so we incorporated the business and originally I was going to bootstrap the thing, um, in, uh, in May, um, was talked off that ledge. Um, thank goodness. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, 
uh, <laughs> it would have been a lot more sleepless nights. But um, uh, but we're you know we're still pretty early on, so we we're only um, actively managing where we're actually uh, generating revenue and and and, and serving patients uh, with one pharmacy today. Um, we have six uh, in total, including this one that are are going into implementation at the this last quarter um, and into next year. Um, and so that's kind of where we are. We're still pretty early on, but I would definitely say we're kind of like, you know, we're growing and, and, and like thinking about making sure we've got good, good systems and, and infrastructure in place to take on that load is, is there. We have, it's all been inbound so far. Um, and I think that's been just on the, you know, on the merits of what we've done on behalf of the clinic partners that we have worked with so far uh, to date. So, how, um, and we're a small how team. Is, but how four, is it inbound? If it if you guys barely have a website, <laughs> uh, you just incorporated. How did they find you? How did they know that you had this offering? Yeah, say SGI clinics and CHCs. They they are a tight knit community. They talk, you know, and they are mm. uh, they're looking for solution providers that are aligned with the intention of the 340B program, and they're looking for. I, I would hope to think that they're looking for more than just a partner that will build a pharmacy, like a a, a dumb brick and mortar pharmacy. I think that's just the beginning, and we have a pretty, uh, like, an amazing clinical pharmacy leader uh, um, who's who's my co-founder that designs really, really uh, dialed in, very impactful uh, clinical pharmacy interventions to work with that on-site pharmacy asset. And I think that word has traveled. And and you know, I I, I would like to think that if we do right and show solid execution velocity, that our pricing is is like meets the intention of the program, which is that maximum money going back to the covered entity that that is going to pay off. And, and, and so we're see, seeing the early uh, uh, fruits of that. So, Peter, how, how big is the team today? I mean, it sounds like you didn't bootstrap. So, so it sounds like you raised some outside capital. Would love to hear a little bit about that as well. I did. Sure. The team is we got four people. It's a it's a it's a small it's a small team. And so and that's that will uh, we'll we'll need to bring in a couple of hires here, and I think. But uh, we can manage a lot with that, with the, the kind of respective skill sets that we, we bring to the table. In terms of, of raise, we I ended up uh, closing a pre-seed round just to make sure that we can meet on the commitments for the, the one client that that I knew was going live this uh, imminently. And so so we we it was a pretty efficient fundraising process. Closed it out. You know, it, it was helpful that there was like a business signed with revenue ready to, to, to go, you know, and, and we, you know, September, uh, we're in the middle of October now, like September is our first full month of, of, of revenue generation. And, uh, and it's, and we're, we're in network with 98% of prescriptions. So we're a pretty steady state already. Um, and so, so like that, that was, it, that, that helped, you know, um, it also helped me sort of manage the, yeah, we're doing services <laughs> as, as part of the, the, the pitch, you know, so. I mean, absolutely. Get your get yourself a founder who gets revenue before they get a website. <laughs> so, a hundred a hundred percent on board with that. Maybe you know. Obviously, it seems like the the team that you're assembling has a lot of background and knowledge and kind of in, in integrity in the space that you're building into. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about. Um, what you think you're going to be using the funds for in terms of, you know, what are the skill sets on the team that you don't have yet that, that you want to prioritize? Yeah. The, like we have like a fractional engineer and that's it, right? Like, I mean, I'm kind of the de facto product lead. Um, we're definitely going to be building out and expanding our engineering and product team. There's, there's no question, right? So we'll be, we'll probably be like hiring a little bit on, on, on the burn rate, like ahead of like of revenue coming in, you know, we're going to want to be very measured about that. 
certainly ops, right? Compliance, like there's a lot of on the services side, right? Like this is like a, this is a real healthcare business that has, you know, re real like reporting and compliance and financial management requirements. Like, so there's going to be some addition on the, on the, on the operations team. And then of course, like every single successive pharmacy that we, we build out, like we'll have its own direct, you know, there will be a pharmacist in charge and a staff pharmacist and, and, and farm techs that are, that, that are working on, on, um, you know, on-prem as well. Um, and so, so those are kind of the, the three general buckets of, of, of where we're going to be from a, from a hiring perspective. So Peter, as the lawyer in the room, so to speak, so how did you end up structuring that pre-seed round? I assume it was done as a safe or a convertible note. Yeah. Safes. I participated in the YC program for my first startup and there's like some templatized, there's a, a company called Clerky. So if any other founders are like listening to this, clerky.com, as long as you don't deviate from their rules, like it's all like standard safe notes and company formation doc. So I, I use that to kind of get the initial company incorporated, make, make sure that's done right, you know, and, um, and issued, uh, safes, uh, and only safes for, for, for the, for the round. Yeah. And by the way, the, the, those, uh, post money versions of the safes that YC has, uh, published, uh, broadly and openly, I think are terrific instrument to use for these early seed and pre-seed rounds. So uh, echo that. And and I found good success with Clerky as well, uh, just for s some of the basics. But to your point, Peter, if you deviate or have anything unique, I think making sure you've got good counsel to help you navigate that is really, really critical. So it was you and your right. co-founder that started it. Uh, uh, were there other members of the initial team or you two sort of split the initial equity on the cap table? No, that's... Yeah. So that's, that's really, that's, that's really it, you know, and then, and we have sort of support. So like um, our pharmacist in charge at our, at our um, uh, clinical partner, you know, is, is, is on our payroll. So that's the other thing we should mention in terms of our model is like we actually staff and take W2 kind of responsibility for, for the, the staff of the actual pharmacy. Um, and, um, uh, and, and we have a compliance uh, and licensing uh, um, uh, leader. Uh, you know, I love that. Well. That's really unique on the W2 element of, of, uh, of bringing the pharmacist in house, it obviously allows the company to have greater, greater control and greater visibility, and just overall ensuring the quality and and consistency that you need in order to deliver on these these critical objectives. Uh, so so kudos to that. But it does then, you know, beg the question on the business model itself. You know, what, what does that mean when, when I don't know if others out there are using 1099s and and doing independent contractors, and how do you think about the impact to the business model? Yeah, good good question and I think as we scale that will be like absolutely like a start to become a more existential question but right now kind of really optimizing towards control and and like communication path right so having essentially what will be a very distributed workforce like we need to have some some way to like make sure that we can be accountable to the covered entity kind of management teams expectations and 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 the, and you know I, I think the only practical way that I know right now how to do it is that the the pharmacist in charge on the ground is you know ultimately you know accountable uh, to to us of course accountable to the the overall ecosystem but uh, just to to kind of keep some sort of balance for how we how we work together as in, as partners. On the on the actual pharmacy side, can you talk a little bit about the patient experience? You've mentioned adherence and obviously just the access to, you know, lower cost medication is, is impactful for adherence, but what else are you doing to improve the patient experience and outcomes? Yeah. Uh, we have, I'll say we have a lot of ideas. We're still too early on to have like a sure. tangible set of product or case studies, but 
I spent a good chunk of my life uh, working on trying to build consumer consumer oriented like tech for poor people. And I kind of bristle when I hear people say that like uh, people who are uninsured don't know how to use apps or don't engage mm. with tech. Like their their convenience bar is so much higher than <laughs> most other folks. And the stakes are so much higher that like mm. if you actually fill those jobs to be done really well and dial in appropriate technology, like I, I strongly believe that the ROI impact and the stickiness uh, is is just much, much higher for, for these types of populations. But that's at the population yeah. when I speak about this. Like if you go to this SDI clinic, you would be shocked at who comes into these clinics. They are from all walks of life across the board. And you cannot you can you cannot like predict exactly like who is, is coming in to get served. So it's a very broad range of patients. But I'll speak yeah. to like generally the the access barriers. I, I want to focus on the big one, which is actually like navigating the healthcare system. And being able to purchase medications that are very expensive, uh, that are often not dispensed at these these pharmacies, and where if you are going to go to a retail pharmacy, we're seeing all the stuff in the press where all these these pharmacies are shutting down, so it's hard to get to in the first place. Um, they're overworked, so they don't have the time to spend with you for, if you have anything complex um, to, to manage from a condition perspective. Yeah, and these clinics is what that's what they provide. So, imagine from a patient journey perspective, just me coming in with my insurance card, I'm fortunate enough to have commercial insurance. Uh, and I'm going to take HIV, let's say uh, a medication, like an antiretroviral. If I get prescribed that, even with my commercial insurance, uh, that likely uh, drug cost is going to have a coinsurance applied to it. Uh, and let's say it's a 10% coinsurance fee. If that is a 10% coinsurance, like, okay, that sounds manageable for like one of my medications. Except when you get your bill, you realize you're going to be spending $4,000 or $5,000 a year just on your copay. And it's not clear for most people that there are secondary and tertiary and quaternary payer uh, uh, layers that you need to apply for this type of program. Mm -hmm. And often the, the, the kind of the mainline pharmacy doesn't have the time or bandwidth, frankly, to kind of go through that with you and get you signed up and reduce that out of pocket expense. And I, I mean, my thesis right now is that like, it doesn't matter how adherent you are. If you don't, if you can't pony up four grand, like your adherence scores are going to go down across the population. Yeah. It's kind of a no brainer. Right. Yeah. And so that's what these SCI clinics do. And what these federally qualified health centers do is they have sliding fee scales so that if you can't pay, there's a systematic way and, and, and uh, like a systematized way to like reduce your out of pocket expense. There's support systems. So, so you can get set up on copay assistance and then foundation support for other out-of-pocket expenses. And these things take time to document, navigate, and and put together so that you can adjudicate a claim successfully with a with a zero copay to the to the end user. And very few do it very well. And 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 I think that's kind of the inspirational thing when you work in these clinics that you realize like how the the hoops that they jump through on behalf of their patients to access the these things. And that's just to get their medication. Yeah. Right. Now let's go to the other parts of the journey. Let's say they've got an addiction issue and they're going to like a methadone clinic or they're in temporary housing or if they're uh, if they were on Medicaid and they were kicked off because of all the redetermination rules that are going on right now and they don't know what their status is or where to even get started. There's all kinds of other systematic sort of structural like barriers to like try to meet patients where they are. And that's the other thing that we do is like one example of this clinical design that is like we actually do outreach with methadone clinics, like to meet patients where they are. We got a mobile clinic as part of our service. We go out there, we, we handle, they'll handle all the addiction oriented components. 
We make sure that they're on insurance. We, we do the uh, uh, HIV and, uh, and hep C education. We'll screen them, bring them into the clinic and, and do the things that public health it needs, right? Which is classically find, link, treat, and retain, right? The finding part, the linking, and the treating, those are all the things that we can do now by benefit of these safety unit clinics having an on-prem pharmacy that helps smooth out some of the barriers that patients face every day. Cool. And then how do you think about, you know, as you mentioned, you you have part-time engineering support and are currently functionally the, the product leader at Alchemy. I'm curious how you think about what you expect to learn across the first several pharmacies and pharmacy sites you're building around what kind of software would be useful, you know, where it really makes sense to double down on investing in building something new versus, you know, jerry-rigging together some other off-the-shelf products and kind of how sure. you're going to think about where the opportunity is on the software side. Yeah, that's a good call. I mean, I think directionally we know the products that we, the, the product suite we want to build. And that's kind of from past experience, just general observation, but we're definitely in the do things that don't scale mode phase of this, uh, of like uh, building out our product roadmap and requirements. Like we're doing a lot of manual processes, kind of filtering for and, dis- and like kind of triaging what needs to be a P1 part of our roadmap versus some of the, a fire we can let burn for a while. You know, like what are things that we genuinely just don't need to build internally? Uh, but given that we're going to be managing, you know, hundreds of these pharmacies throughout the United States, right? Like we do need to have some central infrastructure that's both inwardly product facing uh, on behalf of our clinic providers uh, and also for us as a company, right? Um, and, and as well as like consumer oriented tools to make sure that they can access the care they need. So, you know, like here's a good example. Like here's, here's something that knowing what the patient journey is, is like a set of features that like I certainly never had to deal with in building for consumer apps in Kenya, right? Is um, is like exactly that journey I showed. It's like these these patients go hop multiple community-based organizations. They're in and out of their SCI clinic or, or community health center clinical care provider. And they have no idea or often need a lot of help to sort of like keep their documents in a row, like keep everything together so they can actually be able to walk in and out with a prescription without getting hit with a $500 bill. You know, there, there's definitely consumer-oriented tools that can be used. And the state of like Medicaid consumer tools is pretty bad. And I'm glad there's startups that are out there like fixing that problem. But, you know, like that, uh, that problem absolutely hits, you know, uh, us, uh, uh, our, our patient pool. And there's, a, there's a, some consumer-oriented tools to help smooth out that, that uh, friction and, and improve it adherence um, that, that, that we can build and, and, and ought to build uh, on behalf of our, our patients. Yeah, Yolanda, I was going to say, you know, there's lots of our listeners who are in similar positions as Peter, as founders. You know, what advice would you have for him and, and, and therefore by analogy to some of our listeners as to what the key metrics might be that he should think about focusing on as he looks to raise his next round beyond this pre-seed that he closed recently? Sure. Well, at some point you should put up a website. Uh, I guess that is not a key key, uh, metric. By the time this airs, I will have the bare minimum of, but we're just just booking deals and making money. He's too busy. He's too busy. That is what I love to hear. No, he's, well, you know, and I think this is part of it too, right? It's, you know, you want to see a founder who, you know, is laser focused on the right things and that there's this real sense of, of momentum, right? That like this, you know, that, that, that things, things are moving faster and things, keep happening. And, you know, I think there's a couple of things. One is the pace at which the Alchemy team has been able to book contracts to provide on-site pharmacies has been really impressive. So one thing is, you know, being able to see 
what the pipeline looks like. I think often we're probably familiar with seeing healthcare decks in the seed rounds that where it looks like the top of the funnel is, you know, these are obviously very different businesses, but you know, they're filled with pilot opportunities. There's a million of them. And then of course you end up discovering they convert incredibly slowly. They never convert to paid, et cetera, et cetera. So one is sort of, you know, I think the pace at which things have been marching through the alchemy pipeline have been really impressive. And so one is, I think, you know, really being able to tell the story that not only is the top of the funnel, this pipeline growing like crazy, but that also the time to convert, that you're continuing to learn and fine tune how you're converting folks to, to commitment to partner with Alchemy and what that what that's looking like. I think certainly looking at, at revenue growth, margins, you know, I think to, to your point, part of what's interesting about the 340B program is there are a number of high margin opportunities within it. And right now you're running what is what is functionally more of a service business. So I think being able to tell the story that even as a services intensive business, that it already has pretty promising margins, even before you fully developed out the software layer is something that I think folks would really be keen to see. And then I think since we all know that ultimately, if you keep closing deals and launching pharmacies at the scale, at the sort of pace that you, you've been currently setting, obviously the software layer is going to need to come in. You know, I would certainly want to see some early insights and product roadmap around, you know, what you think is, is necessary to build in terms of, in terms of keeping the momentum going. And then, you know, also just as one note, I think obviously everyone who is sitting in healthcare right now in healthcare investing right now is thinking a lot about um, the staffing shortage at every single level of, of the healthcare and caregiving industries, of course. And, you know, I think also I'd be keen to understand what you think is going to be your kind of edge and your moat in terms of hiring and staffing up at scale, given that, you know, your team could obviously be in the position of having a hundred of these pharmacies pretty quickly. Yeah. I, I think those are great call. Let me just that last point. Um, I think the thing that was not obvious to me before starting this business, but is like increasingly clear now is that the work that our pharmacists do with these clinics, really, they truly practice at the top of their license. They're not just filling bottles and trying to get as many fills per hour, you know, dispenses per hour, you know, like those kinds of metrics. It's not just like this, like, you know, like, like a, like a factory kind of, you know, uh, job. They're doing real deep clinical interventions, clinical work, um, building programs. And I think from a retention and from a recruiting standpoint, like that's, that, that's like just an edge relative to other parts of pharmacy. Like we've had incredibly qualified and capable pharmacists with very, very um, deep backgrounds and expertise, like, you know, kind of, kind of coming, coming to, to speak with us uh, and we welcome more. <laughs> so, uh, pl so please reach out. Um, the other thing I would say is like, we are, you know, without going too much into like specific numbers, like, you know, the, the margin, the operating margin as a services business uh, for us is really solid, you know, and we, we have a very near term path to revenue here. That is not something where as a startup, we have to necessarily like, like, you know, shave out, you know, basic benefits for, for team members. Right. So even though we're a couple of months in, we have a 401k and a 401k match and a full, a full uh, stack of health, health and dental benefits, you know, things that are like typically down the road. And we're confident in doing that because it is what our, our staff and our team and, and, and from a recruiting perspective, I think that that is how we'll compete on, on some level. Second, it's obviously just the right thing to do for, for, uh, for our, our team members and we have, we, I'm confident in the eco fundamental economics of the business that we can extend that very early on to, to team members. So, so I feel, I feel confident about that part. Um, 
uh, when it comes to like, yeah, building out early product, you know, those kinds of, uh, that's like absolutely top of mind for, for me is like, is distilling that and crystallizing that. Um, and we're definitely going to be building some, some, some experiments and some components, um, as we go along to validate, but that's kind of, for me, the fun early product, early foundry product work, which is like build product, talk to users and iterate, you know, kinds of things that we're, we're, we're uh, emerging into now. And for any listeners that uh, whose ears perked up hearing about having good benefits at a startup, are you hiring? Uh, for the right team members, yes. If you are, great. If you care, I mean, the dual mission thing is very important, and that was like it, that's important for us as an internal uh, DNA of the company. It's important for an investors who's on our cap table, um, and and we want to see a track record of mission orientation, great. right? Um, where do uh, they find yes, these? Absolutely. Where do they apply? We, we don't have a website yet. Website. <laughs> <laughs> I will find a quick way to, to right. on a website where people By the can reach time out and this reach episode out and connect with is me. live yeah. next week. There will be a website. <laughs> yeah. Well, unless anybody else has any other questions, I'm going to wrap up with a thank you. So, Peter, this was fantastic. It's so exciting what you're working on and your dedication to the mission is very clear. So thank you. And Alana, always good to see you and chat with you. Thank you so much for being here. And listeners, thank you for joining us on Closing Time. I have one quick favor before you sign off. Please leave us a review. We're trying to get to more listeners. And the best way that you can do that and help us stay on the air and grow this show is by leaving us a very quick five-star review. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thanks for having Thanks, us. Thanks, guys. And that's closing time for today. A huge thanks to our partners at Fenwick for underwriting this show. Recording, editing, and audio mixing by Kyle Moore. Thanks to our guests and to you, our listeners, for joining us. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode. And check out our website, closingtimepodcast.com for more exclusive content. Until next time, this is Hallie Tecco and Michael Esquivel for Closing Time. 